Uh, but we're glad you could be with us today, glad you can worship with us as we gather together. If you want to grab your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, or you can follow along with us on the screens behind me if you'd like to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we've been in a short series on spiritual gifts and what it means for the church, and we've been calling it We Are Strong Tower, and today is the final uh, sermon in that series, and then we're going to start the book of Mark shortly after this. So. Uh, we'll have, for next week, kind of a standalone sermon for uh, Labor Day weekend, and then we're going to be in the book of Mark all the way till Easter. So we'll be uh, walking through the gospel. It'll be a lot of fun together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 14 down to verse 26. Hear the reading of God's word. For just as the body is one and has... Oh, sorry, verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, with our more presentable parts, or which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the embodied church, the embodied church. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that as we gather around your word today, you promise you're with us. And so we pray wherever, wherever we are spiritually, whether we're coming in today tired, confused, doubting, or excited and rejoicing and giving you praise, wherever we find ourselves, God, you are here with us and we pray you'd speak that you might make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, he wanted to be a conductor, but his conducting style was very unconventional to say the least. In fact, this man, he, uh, when he was conducting an orchestra, he would get real low to the ground when the music got low. And then when the music got high, he would kind of leap up into the air and startle everybody. And the, the orchestra didn't know what to do with it. In fact, he, he got so awkward that, that one time he was, he was leading in the orchestra and, and his memory was kind of going bad. And, and uh, he, he told them that when they got to this point, they were to repeat that part. But when they got to the point, and they went to go repeat it, he stopped everybody and he said, no, 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 that's not what I said, that's not how it works. And everybody's throwing up their hands, what do you mean? That's exactly what you said. But he couldn't remember 
half the things he had told them. Of course, there's another time where he's trying to lead from the piano like that. He, he's leading, playing, but he's also trying to conduct everybody. And so his arms are flailing and trying to play at the same time. He ends up knocking over some uh, candles that were sitting on the piano, almost starts a fire and burns down the building. A few months later, he knocks over a choir boy right off the stage. I mean, it, it got so bad that the people were stopping listening to him and, and, and his hearing was starting to go bad, so he couldn't really tell what the parts were correctly and, and they started listening or getting their cues from the violin, the lead violin. Eventually they told him, look, you can't do this anymore. You're, you're not a good conductor. You just need to go home. This is not working out. His name was Beethoven. The man that many consider to be one of the greatest composers of music in all of history, not such a great conductor. Not such a great conductor. He, he realized that he couldn't do it all. He was great in this area, but he really couldn't do it all. And that's okay. Right? That's okay. Because, listen, none of us can do it all, right? Some of us are still learning that, myself included, in many areas of life. We're, we're learning in, in the area maybe of your job where you're, you're overworking, you're trying to do this and that and this and that, and, and you're not willing to delegate things to people because you want to prove yourself to other people to show, I can do this. I can do this. Or maybe if you're a single parent and you have the blessing and the burden of your beautiful children. You're just running ragged. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're, you're a single parent trying to do the job of two people as one person, and you're just worn out. Or maybe for some, it's some other area in life. It might be your finances. You're, you're getting into debt because you really can't afford this, but I just want it. Right? Whatever it is in your life, when you try to to be somebody and do something that, that really you don't have the capacity for. You're, you're trying to be somebody you're not. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put in, you will be you. And that's okay. God has designed you to be you. And so the question is not, how do I become somebody else? The question is, how, how do I find my fit in the way God has designed me? Because God has designed me to play a certain part as the person I am that he's designed me to be. And so what does that look like? And, and so as we're finishing up this series, we've been looking through 1 Corinthians 12 and how Paul describes the church and, and the spiritual gifts that God gives to his church. And we looked first at, at uh, the diversity of the gifts and how God provides the, the many different gifts that he gives to the church. And then we talked about why he gives them to the church and the purpose of these gifts. And so today we're going to talk about the unity of the gifts. But what's interesting about the way Paul now talks about unity is he doesn't actually argue for unity. And the reason is because he's already done that back in the other chapters. Remember, the whole book of Corinthians is all about this divided church. And Paul has been speaking to them about their unity for many chapters now. And so he's already kind of established that foundation. So instead of talking uh, for unity, now he's talking from unity. And his simple idea is this. If you can get this, this is what he's talking about. In order to live out our unity, we need diversity. 
in order to live out the unity that God has purchased for us and provided for us, we need diversity. And he starts to uh, introduce this new metaphor into the conversation, the body. And he says, just the way the body works is the way the church is to work in our unity and our diversity. And so I want to look at this today. How can the church function as a healthy body, a healthy body? So if you're taking notes today, first, what we need to look at is the inclusive body, the inclusive body. Look at me at verse 15. Uh, Look at what he says. He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, follow what he's saying. Paul is, is personifying these body parts. And he's imagining for a moment these conversations between the body parts. It's a little strange and a little comedic, if you will. But he's imagining that Mr. Hand says to Mrs. Foot, or, or the other way around, Mr. Foot says to Mrs. Hand, I don't belong because I don't look like you and function like you. Right? I, I don't have the long flowing fingers like you as a hand. I don't have the gripping strength that you have as a hand. I don't know how many people have tried to pick things up with their toes. It's a little harder than your hands. Right? You can start to compare yourself as, as this person to that person and you realize I don't have what you have and therefore I don't belong. And what Paul is, is addressing is he's addressing this attitude in the local church where they're, they're getting caught up in comparison, which is now leading them to self-pity. I don't belong because I don't have your house. I don't have your gifts. I don't have your money. I don't have your job. I don't have your family life. I don't have your marriage, right? You start to compare yourself to someone else. And now when you compare yourself and you don't match up with that person, You exclude yourself. Oh, I'm just a hand. I'm not a foot. You see that? This is what he's saying. I don't conform to you. And in self-pity, I'm self-excluding. Now, Paul shows the silliness of this. And when we all get like this at some point in our life, in verse 17, look at what he says. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, just imagine for a second, you had sitting next to me on the stage a six-foot eyeball. I mean, not only would that be disgusting, but what, what would that be? Some kind of monster, some kind of cruel joke. Well, what is this? Like, he's, he's saying that this is just silly. Imagine that the whole body was just one body part. How would it even function? What, what would it do? It, he's saying this, this doesn't make any sense. Every part has to play its part. Every part has a purpose. And then he goes even further in verse 18. Look at what he says. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Listen, each one of them as he chose. Here's how I'd summarize that. Inclusion in the body is by God's choice not our conformity. Inclusion is by God's choice, not our conformity. You've probably seen the the classic Disney movie Toy Story, like the original, not like seven or whatever number they're on now. 
Toy Story, the original one. And you remember the, one of the early scenes where uh, Buzz Lightyear and, and Woody kind of come head to head and, and they meet each other and there's this competition of like who's going to be the greater. And Buzz Lightyear is considered, or he's considering himself to be a real space hero. And then Woody decides he's going to burst his bubble and tell him, listen, you're, you're not a space hero. You're a child's plaything, is what he says. And of course, Buzz Lightyear's like, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm a real space hero. And he starts to show him how he can fly. You seen that scene? And then he tries to fly around the room and he really gets like, you know, slung around the fan or something. And, uh, and then Woody says, you know, you're not flying, you're falling in style. And then he realizes, you know what? You're right, I'm, I'm not a space hero. I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy. And then he gets real sad and he kind of gets into his emotions and, and then Woody realizes he might've pushed him a little too far. And then he says this to him. He says, you must not be thinking clearly. Look, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, it's because you're his. It's because you're his. And then he points to Buzz's foot and he says, lift up your foot. And he lifts up his foot and on the bottom of his foot is a little mark in permanent ink of the name of the, the boy that he belonged to, Andy. He belonged by choice, by choice, not because he conformed to some identity that he thought he should have, but because he was his. Listen, sometimes in the church, we can exclude ourselves before anyone else does. And what happens is we, we beat them to the punch because we feel in ourselves that someone else is going to exclude me because I don't match up to them. I, I don't meet their standard or their norm. I don't conform to who they are and what they do. And so therefore, I'm going to push myself away because I don't belong. Yeah. You see that? I don't conform. I don't conform to gender expectations. I don't conform to their spiritual maturity. I don't conform to their outward appearances. I don't conform to their life that they live in their family. Whatever it may be, you look at them and you see yourself and you say, I don't match up. And so we exclude. I don't belong. Listen, listen to me. Comparison will kill your soul. It'll kill your soul. When we start comparing ourselves to others, we start saying things like, I wish I was them. I wish God didn't make me like this. I, I wish God didn't have this come into my life that I've experienced that's been so hard and it shaped me and, and now it makes me different than everyone else and I feel like I don't belong anywhere. I wish God was, was different for me. I mean, social media is, is the thing that, that really in our time pushes this so hard. I mean, social media can be used for good, but... But often, if we're on it too much, the only message we hear is be more, do more, have more, 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 more. Whatever the message is, it's always this. You don't have enough. You are not enough. And it's the message of our culture that we swim in all the time. It's this constant comparison that you have to be them and they need to be you. And if you're not the same, then you are not belonging. This comparison kills our soul and it creates self-pity. We end up becoming uh, discontent with God's design. 
of our body, of our gifts, of our skills, of our calling, of his very choice of us. And listen, self-pity, it's, it's a gospel issue is really what it is. Self-pity is a gospel issue because what happens in our self-pity for me and for you is when we, we try to find our value in our worth in how we compare to somebody else. And so if we match up, then we feel valuable. And when we don't match up, we don't feel valuable. But the gospel has a different system of value. It's not about whether you compare to somebody else and you match up, but the gospel says your infinite value and worth is in how you conform to him and his choice of you. And, and so your, your value is not based on, on someone else's, con, uh, you're, you're conforming to someone else, but it's his choice of you that he might send his own son for you. That his own son might die for you. That his own son might be raised to newness of life for you. Do you hear that? Like it, it's God's choice of you that gives you value. It's God's choice that he would write his name on you in permanent ink and say, she belongs to me. He belongs to me. They're mine. I don't need to conform to anyone else. He is conforming me to him. That, that's how self-pity is dealt with. But the gospel speaks not only to our self-pity, but our self-importance. And look, this is exactly where Paul goes next. The next part is the necessary body. The necessary body. Look at verse 21. He goes on in this next paragraph. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Scholars agree that, that Paul is now switching to another group in the Corinthian church that he's addressing. Right? He's shifting his gaze over to somebody else, and even the perspective changes. If you notice, it's, it's this top-down perspective. It's the eye speaking down to the hand. It's the head speaking down to the feet. Where before, when they were speaking to one another, the, the, the uh, conclusion was, I don't belong. Now the conclusion is, you don't belong. I, I, don't, I don't have any need for you. Before, when I compared us, I thought, you know what, I don't match up. Now, when I compare us, I think, you don't match up. Yeah. You see the difference? Yeah. This isn't dealing with self-pity in the church. This is dealing with self-importance. This is the complete opposite. I'm dismissing the other. I'm, I'm, I'm excluding the other. If you're not like me, you're just an unnecessary object in my life. Get away. Paul corrects them in verse 22. Look at what he says. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, follow his logic with me because this paragraph gets a little uh, confusing at times. He, he's he's uh, getting deep into the metaphor here. Uh, but in his mind, Paul has the, the internal organs in mind. So Paul is speaking about internal organs, which if you think about your internal organs, uh, that in a sense, they are weaker. They are the weaker organs, but, but what he's saying is, even though they are vulnerable and weak, they are indispensable. Indispensable. Try living your life without a stomach, or a heart, or a brain, right? He's saying these things that are vulnerable and weak, they are indispensable. And so key to his, to his argument is uh, that they're not actually weaker, they just seem to be weaker. He says it multiple times. And so what he's saying is, is, yes, physically they are weaker, but functionally 
you can actually consider them stronger. They are just as strong as what you might consider to be the stronger parts of your body. And then he goes on in verse 23 and 24 to make a similar case, uh, speaking about our sexual organs. It's what he calls the, the dishonorable, or, or some translations say shameful. It's, it's the things that you hide. He's saying they're, they're given this greater honor by us covering them. where We're giving them a, a special status, if you will. So what does he mean? Here, here's his point with all the, the metaphor. His point is this. Bodily appearances are deceiving. When you think you see a strong member, it might actually be a weak member. And when you think you see a weak member, it might actually be a strong member. And so what are we to do with that? How are we to respond to that? Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. In other words, what he's saying is the parts that seem to be less important need to be, uh, need to be honored. And those that seem to be more important need to be humbled. And so there's this balancing that happens, this, this balancing within the body where if the, if the honor scale is off, we need to do something to affect that, if you will. And so what, he, what he's saying is this, the seemingly weak or the excluded people in the church need to go from being in the margins to the middle. You catch that? You following his logic from the margins to the middle so that they can be fully included. And then in verse 25, he gives the conclusion. He says, this is how we overcome the division and the lack of care. In, in, in other words, the, the division that we see in the church is because the, the honor scale is off. Someone is being over honored and someone is being under honored. And the way we bring out that unity is to bring balance there. And so in verse 26, he says it this way, if one member suffers, all suffer together. But if one member is honored, all rejoice together. He's saying if the weak suffer in the church, all suffer. But if the weak are honored, all rejoice. All rejoice. Because God honors weakness with, with this indispensable status. Indispensable status. There's an author, a uh, lady by the name of Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, she became a quadra, quadra, uh, can't speak, quadriplegic after a, a diving accident when she was 17. And uh, after that accident, it completely and radically changed her life. And she became an advocate for uh, the disabled community among the church in particular and has written many books and has told her story in different places. But one of the stories she tells is that in 1995, uh, she was uh, invited as part of the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing uh, to come be part of the counseling team for the victims and their families. And so uh, she was invited to this place to come uh, speak and to interact with people and help counsel folks. And so she shows up to the counseling center, which happened to be at the Red Cross building. And she shows up to this big brick building and, and she wheels up in her wheelchair. And she says when she came into the building, she said people were frantically going everywhere, setting up things and, you know, uh, doing things to get ready for the, for the time. And, and she said it was kind of chaotic and I didn't know where I was supposed to go and who I was even supposed to meet. And she said kind of out of the blue, this one lady, tall lady in a long white lab coat spotted me. And she turned around right there with her clipboard in hand and she shouted across the room, hey, Joni, we're so glad you're here. And she said it kind of caught me off guard because I'm not sure 
how she knew my name and why she's glad I'm here. I don't know what's going on. And so she just said, out of curiosity, I said, why? And this is what the lady said from the Red Cross. She said, there are so many people right now going through the hardest time of their life. And when they're able to meet with somebody who's also been through something as difficult as what they've been through, it brings incredible comfort to them. And she said this, we need more people like you here. And Joni said, it just hit me at that moment that I don't know if I've ever been received and honored with a place and a position like that in the church. She said, but, but what if it could? What, what if the church was a place that received and honored people in their weakness and in their suffering and in their pain and said, we need people like you here? She said, the Red Cross woman honored me with a place and a purpose. With a place and a purpose. See, the embodied church, it, it centers the marginalized. The people that the world and, and even the church often has declared, we have no need of you. We don't need the unhoused because they just take up space. We don't need the incarcerated because they had their chance. We don't need racial minorities because they make us uncomfortable. We don't need the unborn because they will just ruin our plans. We don't need the disabled because they cost too much. We don't need the immigrant because they take our place. Right? We can go on and on where the people that our society says, we have no need of you, but God is saying, not in my body, not in my church. The marginalized are moved from the margins to the middle. And as God says, I'm going to give them greater honor. See, when we, when we move uh, the, the people from the margins to the center in the middle, what we're doing is we're doing what God is doing himself. We're, we're saying, I'm going to give you greater honor than the rest of the world would give you. Listen, what he says is when that happens, all rejoice. But it's hard. It's hard. Some of us right now, as I'm saying that, you're, you're struggling trying to think about how is that even fair? Right? That, that, that doesn't sound fair that we would give preferential treatment to somebody else when aren't we supposed to treat everybody equally? Shouldn't the call be to give everyone the same amount of honor? Why does God give greater honor to some and less honor to others? How does that make any sense? Right? It's our cultural value uh, in America where we, we value equality, and equality is a good value, and we want to value that. But sometimes, in some circumstances, equality doesn't go far enough. And what Paul is pointing out is when you have a situation in the church or in any other area of life where, where there's a disparity between two groups, where one is less honored and one is already greater honored, they're not starting at the same place. And so you have to give greater honor to the one who's been given lesser honor. It's moving past equality to equity. Gospel equity means we give them, as God does, this greater honor. And what's ironic, and what we're about to see in the rest of the passage, is the only way that happens is we need a gospel of weakness. A gospel of weakness. Because ironically, it's the, it's the humility that it takes to say, I'm going to give someone else greater honor than myself or other people who are like me that makes it happen. 
It's the humility of weakness that cures our lack of care. We have to come to realize that what may seem to be weaker and what may seem to be stronger, if you take a closer look, you realize we're a lot more together on the spectrum of weakness than you realize. That we're a lot deeper into this thing called dependence and need. And so it's easier for me to just embrace my weakness and to say, you know what? I am weak just like you and I'm going to honor you in that weakness and lift you up. Because if I'm secure in my weakness, I don't have to pretend I'm better. If I'm secure in my weakness, I don't have to prove my self-importance being greater than yours. If I'm secure in my weakness, I don't need to reject others so that I can be accepted. Weakness is the way. But how do you get secure in that weakness? We find it in the crucified body. And this is the last point, the crucified body. Paul bookends this section. We didn't read it, but I'll read it now. With verse 12 and verse 27. Listen to them and listen to the similarity that he bookends here. Verse 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, back in verse 27, we might have expected Paul, as he's making this introduction to the metaphor of the body, to think that he's going to say, oh, there's a body and there's members and they're one and all this, that so it is with the church. But he doesn't say that. I mean, that would have made sense because the church is the body. And he goes on to say that in verse 27. But right off the bat, he doesn't say, so it is with the church. He says, so it is with Christ. And, and what's fascinating to me is he's using the church and Christ interchangeably to say that what, what happens for Jesus is what happens for the church and what happens for the church is what happens for Jesus. And so what he's doing is he's linking these two together to say it is with Christ that this experience is happening. What's true of the head is true of the body. What goes for Christ goes for the church. His life shape becomes our life shape. It's what theologians have called our union with Christ. In fact, it's one of Paul's favorite uh, topics, one of his themes that come up over and over all throughout the New Testament. He says it 140 times. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. It's the way we live our faith out as the church. Over and over again, hammering home our truest identity. It's in him. Your identity isn't in your weakness. Your identity isn't in your strength. Your identity isn't in your skills. It's not in your abilities. It's not in your gifts. It's not in any of those things. Your identity, he says, is in Christ. Or as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ in me, me in Christ. His life is now shaping my life. The crucified body is giving shape to the crucified church body. Author Tim Keller puts it this way, and I've, I've quoted this before, but it's worth quoting probably every week. He says this, If we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody. Because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself 
or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. You hear that? It's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. And what Paul is saying is we can finally forget ourselves in the church when we find ourselves secure in Christ. That's the key. That we find ourselves secure in this Christ who who came for us, not out of self-pity, not out of self-importance because he thought he was amazing, but out of this self-forgetting love that he gave himself. Right? Jesus comes giving himself away freely, giving himself not because he was burdened, not because he had to, not because he was forced, but because he wanted to out of love for his children. Jesus said, I'm coming in the power of weakness. I'm coming in the power of weakness to live among you, to die on the cross for you. And listen, in the Roman world, to die on a cross was the ultimate exclusion. It was the example of the the ultimate disabled person, the ultimate marginalized person. You, You were thrown to the side of the road literally to die as everyone watched. You were dying in the margins. And Jesus said, I will take that for you. With all the nails in my hands, with the thorns on my head, the stripe on my back, with the crowds crying out, he saved everyone else. Why can't he save himself? He stayed. See, God was revealing something about himself in our saving. He's identifying with the excluded. He's identifying with the weak. He's identifying with those who don't conform to the culture's expectations. And it's in this place of weakness that he shows his greatest power to overcome sin and death itself. He would overcome our sins of superiority. He would overcome our sins of self-pity. He would overcome all our sins through weakness. He was dishonored on the cross, but honored in the empty tomb. He was rejected so that we could be included. He was despised so we could be honored. He was pushed to the margins of hell so that we could enter the center of heaven. His crucified body now gives shape to his church's body. It's the shape of our life. Is the shape of the cross shaping our church? That's the question we have to ask. It's the the call we're being brought into. The shape of the cross is the shape of repentance and faith. It's to say, I'm going to die to my self-pity and my self-importance, and I'm going to live to this self-forgetting love for Jesus. Where I'm, I'm going to give myself away, not because I'm trying to earn something or prove something, but because I've already been approved. I've already been included by his choice, by his death. He chose me and brought me in, made me a part of the body so that I could love freely and securely and completely. Repentance and faith means I'm turning away from trying to build some kind of place for myself and I'm I'm turning towards Jesus being my place. He is the center of my life so that I don't have to be at the center and you can be at the center where I, I can love you and care for you and serve you without needing anything from you. This repentance and faith, this life of following Jesus is what he calls his church to. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we ask that you would work in us 
the shape of your life, the shape of death and resurrection, the shape of self-forgetting love, of taking up our cross and following you for the joy set before us, not out of grudge, not, not out of bitterness, not out of sadness and grief, but God, because you are with us and you are in us and we are in you. And as we follow you and we fellowship with you, we know that you are empowering us and securing us for what you've called us to. God, may you make us into a church who centers the weak, whether that be us or someone else in this season. But there will be seasons where it'll be us. And God, I pray that you would give us also the humility to be loved and to be served so that we might be honored and lifted up where we find our own selves weak and excluded. And God, through this, may the church be built up for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing.